AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Corn ethanol is the transportation fuel solution available to combat climate change today. Learn more about the climate benefits of corn ethanol at ncga.com. The biofuels industry has a turning point ahead. When Congress authorized the Renewable Fuel Standard, it set annual blending targets for the first 15 years of the program. The levels are still supposed to be set every year after that, but Capitol Hill left the specifics to the Environmental Protection Agency. And how it will work from there is still a little up in the air. The EPA is beginning the process of figuring that out, but the industry has some options too. It could go to Capitol Hill and ask for a new slate of volumes. It could try to extract some more certainty out of the EPA. But there's also another option on the table right now that has already been tried across the country. It's called a low-carbon fuel standard, LCFS, if you're familiar. It's a policy on the books in a few states already, with more taking a look. The renewable fuels industry is interested in the idea's potential, but also a little concerned about the details. I'm Ben Nully. And I'm Spencer Chase. We'll cover that and more in the second episode of our deep dive on biofuels, LCFS 101. Over the last 15 years since the Renewable Fuel Standard was signed into law, there's been an increased focus on renewable fuels and how they present tremendous opportunities to reduce carbon emissions. Last week we learned how the RFS helped drive the biodiesel and ethanol industries toward success, but it hasn't been the only idea as a way to help significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions or provide opportunities for the industries. There's something called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard. According to the California Air Resources Board, the regulatory agency over the LCFS, the goal is to lower the carbon intensity of transportation fuel while also providing an increasing range of low-carbon and renewable alternatives. CARB says the LCFS has helped displace more than 16 billion gallons of liquid petroleum fuel. Now to be clear, the LCFS is not the same as the RFS. There are different criteria for companies who want to participate and American Coalition for Ethanol CEO Brian Jennings explains how it's different. A low-carbon fuel standard is a performance standard in transportation fuel, uh, requiring reductions in greenhouse gases from transportation fuel over a period of time. It's very different than what folks are maybe commonly aware of, and that's the renewable fuel standard, which is an annual volumetric mandate. There's no um, volume requirement in a low carbon fuel standard. There's simply a requirement that whatever fuel is sold into the marketplace, in order to earn credits in the carbon market, it needs to reduce greenhouse gases compared to baseline gasoline. You can sell fuel into a marketplace under a low carbon fuel standard that does not reduce greenhouse gases um, if you choose to but then you will incur what's called a deficit. And in order to come into compliance with the low carbon fuel standard, um, you'll either have to acquire credits from low carbon producers like ethanol and biodiesel and renewable natural gas and electricity, 
or you need to purchase some of those low carbon fuels and blend it with whatever fuels you're supplying into the marketplace. California's LCFS was adopted as state law in April 2010 and began implementation in 2011. Simply put, the goal is to remove carbon from the transportation fuel sector. That could be replacing gasoline through electric cars or substituting biomass-based diesel for traditional diesel. It puts a value on carbon being removed from the atmosphere, then assesses those benefits to the fuel. National Biodiesel Board CEO Donnell Rehagen says biodiesel and renewable diesel producers are able to sell a product into a market that is replacing their petroleum counterparts. You know, currently today, biomass-based diesel generates 45% of the credits under that LCFS program. So, so what that means is if biodiesel and renewable diesel were not available in California, they would lose 45% of the carbon reduction that they've recognized uh, by those fuels being available. So, and to put that into some perspective, um, electric vehicles, for instance, are generating about 18% of the credits currently in California. So biomass-based diesel is by far the largest contributor to California's carbon reduction goal. And we, we, we're proud of that. We're extremely proud of that. And I think that's all in the context of a conversation about at the LCFS in California that most likely didn't see or envision biomass-based diesel playing a major role in their decarbonization efforts. I mean, I believe they would have really looked at electrification as being the ultimate goal. But I think what they're seeing is what's being becoming more uh, uh, evident across the country is that electrification may very well have its role, but it's going to take some time. And so we're very proud of the fact as well that we can bring carbon reduction to somebody who wants it, whether it's a state, whether it's a region, whether it's a municipality, whether it's a country, we can bring that carbon reduction to them today. And, and without, with very little added investment, because the infrastructure to produce it, to distribute it, is already in place. In 2007, Harry Simpson saw the potential of low carbon and where it was headed in California, so he started Crimson Renewable Energy. According to their website, it's the largest biodiesel production facility in California and distributes biodiesel to the wholesale market in the western United States. The company also owns Sequential, which is one of the leading used cooking oil collectors, too. At one point, you know, we were like everyone else. Okay, you're going to build a biodiesel plant, you're going to run soybean oil. And it was pretty clear to me the way the carbon programs, by the time we rolled into, say, 2009, you know, LCFS had been enacted via an executive order. California had passed uh, AB32, you know, the broad set of comprehensive carbon regulations that waste raw materials would be the way to go right, to use something that wasn't a virgin veg oil. And we were already partway through building a plant, and then to try to change that ended up being a much bigger deal than we thought. Even then, the company had a lot of things to work through with the plant to get it to run at their volume production goals. Simpson says there's no doubt the LCFS created a market for his business. The California market for biodiesel and many other types of renewable fuels wouldn't be what it is today. You know, our volumes, you know, biodiesel in 2020 was, it's going to come in at about 245 million gallons in California. And, you know, in 2008, it was like 20 million some gallons. So that's kind of where we'd be without LCFS. Maybe a little bit better than 20, but nowhere near where we are today. So it drives the market. And 
you know, it makes, it forces us to make decisions based on what's going to give us the best carbon score. So here's how it works. Companies get a score and the carbon price trades every day, which is based on a per metric ton. So when people say an LCFS credit, it's one metric ton is one credit. And, you know, today it's $180 per metric ton, for example. And based on your carbon score, that could be worth $1.60 per gallon or it could be worth 50 cents a gallon. So the lower carbon score is going to have more value. According to the Jacobson, a price reporting firm in Chicago, LCFS credit prices have moved from the upper teens in 2014 to above $200 per credit today. When you look at revenue generated through credit trading, it has increased from $723.5 million in 2017 to $2.7 billion in 2019. Yes, billions. Simpson says the LCFS application process in the beginning was a one-and-done scenario, but now it's no cakewalk. It's a little bit more onerous if you're using uh, what are called specified source feedstocks, which are things like used cooking oil, animal fats, distiller's corn oil. Uh, it requires now in order to get a pathway application through the process, it involves a third-party uh to audit your application and check various things. And then if you're using one of the specified source feedstocks, it means checking your feedstock suppliers and where did they get the stuff. And there's there's a lot of traceability requirements, uh, documentation requirements uh, to show the origin of that feedstock. Simpson says it could take as long as six months to build a plant if you're applying to comply with the LCFS. But this program is not just in California. Oregon and Washington also have LCFS programs. Even outside the U.S., British Columbia, Canada, and Brazil do too. Other states like Colorado, Minnesota, Utah, and New York are exploring options. So could this work in the Midwest? Jennings says ACE is already working with states like Minnesota. One of the reasons that ACE has been working with Midwest stakeholders in Midwest states to try to get you know, states beyond California and Oregon to look at a low carbon fuel standard or a clean fuel standard is that we shudder at the thought that Congress looks to the West Coast and says, well, California has a low carbon fuel standard. Let's just do it precisely the way California does. That that gives us significant heartburn because of the, the many warts, the many imperfections that we find in the California program. You know, the Minnesota legislation uh, is is different in significant ways from California. It allows E15 in mid-level blends, whereas California currently prohibits E15. It's we, the topic we've been talking about. It includes language insisting that the latest discrete model is used to determine life cycle analysis of the various fuels. California kind of cherry picks. They use outdated versions of life cycle analysis to overstate the carbon intensity of corn ethanol, but they'll use the latest life cycle science when it comes to perhaps renewable natural gas or, or sugarcane ethanol from Brazil. The Minnesota legislation is technology neutral, whereas California absolutely tips the scales in favor of electric vehicles. And so if we can get states like Minnesota to adopt or even give the impression that they're making progress on legislation that's distinctly different from the California approach, 
we think that forces Congress not just to sort of narrowly look at California as the model by which to do this, but look at other states. Rehagen agrees with Jennings and says it is totally appropriate for a Midwest-based LCFS to look and act differently than California's. Obviously, the first and foremost goal in, in California was going to be to clean the air. And uh, that's going to be a primary goal in the Midwest as well. But I'm going to guess there's other objectives in an LCFS as well. And so that would be my suggestion is don't look at it from the standpoint of, gosh, we have to do something exactly like California, but allowing California to be a model to build off of to make sure that it's something that's really going to work for the states that want to adopt it here in the Midwest. Do you think the going the state policy approach is the better way versus a, a national broad uh, LCFS across the entire nation? Ben, I don't know that I would say it's better. My my guess is it was, it's going to be easier for states. Again, we just were talking about how the folks in the Midwest may feel like they're not comfortable with something the folks in California are comfortable with. So if you take that and you know extrapolate it across the entire country, you could easily see where there would be some uncertainty about a policy that would fit everybody. Uh, agriculture interests you know, much more prominent in the Midwest than you might find on, on either one of the coasts. And so that's where, to me, I could see it being easier, you know, in a, in a state or a regional area to look at those kinds of programs. But I think from a fuel supplier standpoint, whether you're us or whether you're, you know, somebody else, I think a national program would be much easier to, to understand and to, to know where you stood as, as a fuel supplier. It's important to remember the LCFS is not the only policy that could potentially work to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There also could be legislative actions to increase the use of advanced biofuels like cellulosic ethanol or increasing the research octane number of gasoline from 91 to 98. So they have some options. It just depends on what the consensus will be and direction the industry and policymakers want to go. Okay, back to the LCFS. Is a national program possible? When we come back, Spencer will explore the life cycle analysis of low-carbon fuels, the GREET model, and Capitol Hill's approach to a national policy. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Ethanol, as a transportation fuel, is uniquely positioned to immediately combat climate change and clear the air we all breathe. Affordable, readily available, corn-based ethanol provides consumers with a renewable low-carbon solution today and for decades to come. Learn more about the ethanol policies and priorities of NCGA at ncga.com. The last event I attended before the coronavirus brought travel to a halt was the 2020 Commodity Classic in San Antonio. It's the annual gathering of the nation's corn, soybean, wheat, and sorghum producers, as well as equipment manufacturers. It's usually one of the last events of the meeting season for ag groups, so for me, it also typically doubles as the last hurrah of my spring travels and a signal that I should probably stock up on groceries when I get home. As a reporter, I really like covering this event. All the different groups coming together makes for a lot of news and it's hard to walk down a hallway without running into someone I've been meaning to talk to for a story. The political nerd in me also likes to sit in on the sessions where the groups update their policy books and set their priorities for the next year. And at the 2020 Corn Congress, something caught my attention. 
Delegates for the National Corn Growers Association were debating how they should approach a low-carbon fuel standard. One delegate in particular walked up to the mic, spoke his mind, including his belief that a low-carbon, high-octane fuel standard could be the renewable fuel standard for the current generation of leaders. That got my attention. The RFS has been the biggest legislative achievement for the biofuels industry. For someone to mention anything in the same sentence as it is a big deal, even if it is just the opinion of one member, and not necessarily NCGA, who, by way of disclosure, is the lead sponsor of this podcast. Ben talked a lot about the California LCFS. Some people in the ethanol industry aren't exactly fans of it. I mean, we certainly support the idea of a low-carbon fuel standard, and of course, importantly, the devil is in the details. And so if you look at a state like California and what they've done, I mean, it's a good example of, in some ways, what not to do. That's Emily Score, the CEO of Growth Energy. California's LCFS uses data modeling developed in 2009 by the Global Trade Analysis Project to determine what's called land use change. Basically, that's the impact of transforming the natural landscape for some other use. In this case, converting land to crop ground for biofuel feedstock production. I mean, I think really important is the modeling. And you've got to make sure that these are these are using the most up-to-date science, that this is tech neutral. And for example, you know, the penalties against ethanol for, for land use change is a really good example of something that's just completely not grounded in, in what the facts and the science are. So um, the modeling is going to be mission critical for any type of, of carbon policy. We talked a little about the life cycle analysis conversations the industry had with the environmental community in our last episode, but the topic is especially relevant in an LCFS dialogue. NCGA biofuels lobbyist Kathy Bergren says the industry is looking to get out ahead of potential consideration at a broader level by presenting an alternative to California's modeling. What the industry is looking to use is something called the GREET model. That's short for greenhouse gases, regulated emissions, and energy use in transportation. You know, it measures the entire life cycle of all different kinds of fuels and transportations, and it's super nerdy. But we think it's a pretty good measurement. Um, it's, it's a pretty, it's an accurate measurement and we like it. What California does is they take that and they sort of cherry pick it and they add some different things in there and, and some things that we feel like don't really credit biofuels for all of the emissions reductions that biofuels offer. Really add, add some penalties on, on biofuels the way that they, that they do. That they do. So certainly the, the model that you're using to score that carbon intensity is really important. And we feel like California hasn't, has, has, has cherry-picked that a little bit. And in some other areas in their LCFS, they, 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 they also put the, put the thumb on the scale for, for electric vehicles in, in, in a couple of other areas. The GREET model was developed by the Argonne National Lab at the Department of Energy. It's now at the center of the biofuels policy debate as the industry grapples with the critical aspect of land use. Timing might be on the industry's side too, says NCGA CEO John Doggett. Corn production paints a better environmental picture now than it did 20 years ago. But he also wants to make sure the life cycle modeling that might be written into the industry's future policies will be able to adapt to the next 20 years too. It needs to have in place a process by which you you reanalyze all of the new data and the new situation. Let's not get ourselves stuck into a regime where we're looking at these things from the lens of 2021 for the next 10 years. Let's look at it 21, 
and then again in 22, and then again in 23. I think the, the big mistake that we've made in, in a number of different places is we've not built in there that mechanism or that process by which we go ahead and, and take another look as things get better. To be fair, the land use fight is not a new one. It first emerged when Congress was considering what would become the renewable fuel standard, according to ACES Jennings. The assumptions were, were you know, wildly overstated at the time. We, we know that now that we've produced 15 billion gallons um, of ethanol from, from corn in the United States, and we've been able to look at actual land use change. This isn't really about the ethanol industry looking for a sustainability ribbon or a pat on the back. Land use change modeling is critical to the functionality of an LCFS. As has been observed in California, if a policy adopts a heavy penalty on conventional ethanol for its feedstock production, that's a problem for the biofuels sector. It's going to determine the winners and losers in future policies that are you know, going to be more performance-based and less volumetric mandates, right? These low-carbon fuel standards, these clean fuel standards. Life cycle science is important also because it's gotten so much better and so much more reliable in 2021 than it was back in 2008 and nine. The, the land use change penalty, for example, EPA charges a, I think it's 20 or 30 grams against corn ethanol. CARB charges a 19 gram penalty against corn ethanol. The latest GREET model would say that the land use change penalty should probably be around three or four grams. The modeling and other technicalities will be critical, but if that can be ironed out, biofuel groups like the idea of an LCFS. Jeff Cooper is the president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. The, the feature, the thing we really like about a low carbon fuel standard is it doesn't tell the marketplace how to reduce carbon intensity. It just says you need to get from uh, where we are today to a 10% reduction in 10 years. You can do that by electrification. You can do that by blending in more biofuels. You can do that by substituting renewable natural gas uh, into, you know, heavy duty vehicles. Um, you know, there, it, doesn't, it doesn't dictate what fuels or vehicles you have to use to, to achieve that reduction. It just mandates that you make that reduction happen. NBB's Rehagen says biodiesel would stand to gain from the policy as well. And there's definitely advantages you know, from a biomass-based diesel standpoint, because our carbon reductions are quite extensive. And so that incentive is really there, I believe, on the fuel suppliers and the distributors to, to look for the highest carbon reduction fuels they can find. And that's where biodiesel and renewable diesel come into play. SCORE says growth energy is on board for LCFS conversations, too but also says it's critical for the existing policy to stick around. Really importantly for us when we have these conversations about exploring what would a future policy look like, it's very important for us that anything that we do is additive and it's in addition to the renewable fuel standard, not as a substitute for. The RFS um, has been one of our most successful energy policies and, and agricultural policies. So we need to make sure first and foremost that we're optimizing the RFS. And then in addition, um, let's have additional conversations about what we can do in kind of a phase two approach. It's on that last point where the oil industry is going to disagree. Any kind of conversation about an LCFS, you have to talk about it as not, a, not additional to the RFS. That's Jeff Moody, the vice president of government relations for the American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers. He says they're open to an LCFS. For their industry, some aspects of the policy are better, some are worse. 
As is often the case, the specifics will be important. Is that good for consumers? Is it not? Um, is it forcing electrification or is it truly allowing uh, liquid fuels to compete? So, you know, we, we'd be looking at things through kind of the achievability, cost effectiveness, kind of, that kind of lens. Is, is it really te truly technology neutral? For the American Petroleum Institute, Senior Policy Advisor Patrick Kelly says they don't have a hard position on the subject, but they're keeping an eye on it. I think on a principled basis, most of our companies would agree that looking at carbon, carbon intensity, and, and essentially the overall carbon footprint of transportation is the right way to go. But as you say, the devil's in the details with how a program gets implemented. And so we're not out there supporting low carbon fuel standard initiatives, but we're also not opposing low carbon standard initiatives that are out there in the states. What we're trying to do is make sure that whatever these states are coming up with, or, or going forward if it's the federal government, on a low carbon fuel program, we're trying to make sure that whatever standards they put in place are achievable, whatever standards they put in place actually achieve CO2 reductions in the marketplace, and that it's workable for consumers, that it's not going to result in a program that really backfires in the marketplace. So understanding what the industry groups think, that leaves an important question. What does Capitol Hill think? The state-by-state -state approach Ben discussed is one thing, but changing federal policy on the fuel Americans put in their tanks every day is a heavy lift. If that's the approach the industry decides to take, they'll need to figure out who their friends will be on Capitol Hill. Senator Joni Ernst is one of the most vocal biofuels champions in Congress. Prior to her time in Washington, she was a state legislator in Iowa, where biofuels are big business. Now, she's being vocal about the proliferation of electric vehicles, a topic we'll cover later in this series, but also the future of the biofuels policy landscape. And she says an LCFS could be in the mix in the future. We certainly know that our carbon emissions, um, if you put, you know, put uh, petroleum with our products, uh, we know that it lowers carbon emissions by 46%. That is one of the newer studies that has been done on ethanol, uh, that has been done on biodiesel. So I think we absolutely have a role there. I think that is doable. Um, I think it is much better than the push to move to all EV as what we've seen in California. Um, so I hope that we can learn through this process that there are partnerships available out there and it's all of the above. You know, it's not just electric vehicles, but it does uh, happen to be ethanol and biodiesel, whether it's um, from corn, biomass, you, you name it. We have solutions to combat climate change. Minnesota Democrat Amy Klobuchar is also a vocal biofuels champion in the Senate. She says she's open to whatever policies will lead to expanding use. Well, I believe we should consider new policy proposals like this one. I actually think it's really an interesting uh, thing to put in place, um, and that would incentivize you around E15. Um, I'm, again, being practical here because I would I'd like to see something like this, and I think states doing it is actually really helpful. But... Let's make sure that we are at least getting everything out of that we can get right now out of the existing laws. But the effort on Capitol Hill will also underscore a separate but related issue for biofuels. They might need a few more Joni Ernst and Amy Klobuchar's. Minnesota Democrat Colin Peterson was a supporter during his time in Congress, but was limited in his influence on biofuels policy since that falls under the purview of the Energy and Commerce Committee, not the House Ag Committee that he chaired twice. 
but he says the current party makeup of rural America could spell some challenges in the future. One of the problems we have in agriculture is the entire Corn Belt and Midwest agriculture is completely represented by Republicans. There are no Democrats, you know, to speak of. You got Sherry Bustos, uh, Angie Craig, Cindy Axney, and their districts are more suburban than rural. You know, so you don't have anybody in the Democratic Party that has a rural district anymore. And that's the problem, you know. But at the end of the day, the Republicans are not going to go along with something that does in ethanol because of who they represent. And so in order for them to get anything done, they're going to have to have some Republican buy-in. And so who knows what will the compromise will be to get that done. It's very hard to tell. I don't think we're going to come up against 2022 and make some big change that's going to just go in a 90-degree direction. I don't believe that'll happen. Since very few bills move on a standalone basis, whatever the biofuels industry does will need to be packaged with something. And Peterson says it will also need help from congressional leaders. So it's going to have to be in some bigger vehicle. What that would be, it kind of depends on what the situation is. You know, if we had somebody, if we had Tom Daschle leading the Senate, this would be fixed in this um, infrastructure bill. (laughs) You know, and that's the problem. We don't have... uh, we don't have the people in a position of power that could, that could put in there what needs to be done. The LCFS is one of a handful of items that make for an interesting but uncertain future for the biofuels industry. No matter the policy solution, though, the industry is going to need some new technology to meet its carbon reduction aspirations. In particular, the industry needs to commercialize advanced biofuels like cellulosic ethanol. We'll talk about that in next week's episode of our Deep Dive on Biofuels. AgriPulse Deep Dive is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. For Ben Nulli, I'm Spencer Chase.